going to have a look, um, start off by having a look at the historical context of the prophecy. It's not always easy to identify when these prophecies uh, first came about, but we can be fairly confident uh, in its placement. But even if we're wrong, the message is one of urgency. The Lord is coming, and it's a message that's actually open to all the ecclesia. We'll be having a look at that uh, in its specific detail, because... This prophecy singles out the different parts of our ecclesial house. Not in this prophecy can anybody say this is for somebody else. It's for everybody. And the insects and the, the analogies that we come out here from the great lion will have a look at. And what is it that the prophecy of Joel is giving us as an indication to what uh, time period this might be? And then the first talk, we're then going to finish off with that message of hope, the solemn assembly that's taken, the cry, the lament, and how that is replaced in chapter two with the most compelling message of hope. There is always opportunity to turn to the Lord and he will always turn back to us. But the time is short. Now is the time for action, says Joel through inspiration. And then in part two, we're going to be having a look at the future prophetical uh, prophecy of Joel and how it might apply to the time subsequent to the manifestation of God in the earth. It's fascinating that we're going to have a look at plagues and how they manifest God's judgments in the earth and how even COVID-19 has focused the minds of many uh, as to why these things are coming on the earth. Just in the news uh, yesterday, a, a, a church pastor was saying that his congregation were asking him, is this a specific judgment from God? We may uh, have a look at the principle here of how God uses uh, things to fulfill his plan and his purpose. But throughout all of this, we know that God is in control of all things and is working uh, to fulfill his plan and purpose with mankind. And ultimately, as Brother Dieter mentioned in his prayer, Jerusalem shall once again be a city of peace after the order of Melchizedek. So let's have a quick look there. Let's dive uh, into, into Joel. This is um, an example of a, of a possible chapter breakdown uh, that we see within this book. Um, if anybody wants a copy of these slides uh, after the talk, then they can, they can have them. But there is a repetition here that we'd just like to bring out, that there is a warning, then there's a call, uh, and then there's um, sorrow. So the warning given to everybody, the call to repentance, and then there's the sorrowful cry. That's exactly the same thing as we see in chapter two. But instead of the sorrowful cry, there it's replaced with a message of hope the message of salvation through the teacher of righteousness. And we'll have a look at that in a couple of moments. Then chapter three is talking specifically about the reconstitution of the kingdom um, of Israel in the land, specifically in Judah and Jerusalem, and what is going to happen before the Lord Jesus Christ will be again in Zion. And the very last verse uh, of the prophecy of Joel mentions that the great king enshrined in the throne of David in Jerusalem. So that's the the overview. Now let's let's get into uh, a little bit of more detail 
about the historical context. Now you can see there, there's a picture of Tyndale. Uh, many of you will have this chart. That's where Tyndale thought uh, the prophecy of Joel might, might be. Others uh, have suggested that it's in the time of uh, Jehoshaphat. If I think I can move my cursor, you can see Jehoshaphat here. Others have said Hezekiah um, over here. And others, um, as on this chart, have said that actually it would make more sense for it to be in the time of Josiah. We're going to answer that question um, as we go through. We don't want to be too dogmatic about um, any of these things. We're all still learning, no matter how old we are. Um, but there are perhaps one or two indications that lead us to think that it is a time of impending destruction. Um, and that might therefore lead us away from then the time of the prophecy of Jehoshaphat. Hezekiah, there was a destruction, wasn't there? There was uh, the Assyrian invader that was coming. But of course, Jerusalem was saved from that. Um, the emphasis in Joel is, is that Jerusalem is not saved. And interestingly, uh, there's no reference in the prophecy of Joel to the northern kingdom. It also implies um, that the northern kingdom has already been taken away into captivity. One thing we'll just pick out here, and we'll pick out some of the other examples as we go through, is in chapter 2 and verse 13. It says there, and rent your hearts and not your garments and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil. We know, don't we, from chapter three, that this prophecy is to Judah um, and Jerusalem. There's a lot of allusions to that. But here, the prophet through inspiration is specifically identifying that there is a problem within the heart. The outward appearance, it seems was appropriate enough. They were looking good. They were keeping their garments unspotted from the world, it seems. But their heart was not perfect. Rent your heart. That leans it perhaps away from the time of Hezekiah when we saw the most amazing spiritual revival um, under that king. You remember that they kept the Passover in the second uh, month, the law giving way to grace. People weren't cleansed according to the ritual purification that was necessary to hold the Passover. But Hezekiah prayed for them and the Lord pardoned every one of them. The northern kingdom, given that last opportunity to come back into covenant relationship uh, with God before the Assyrians came and took them away to oblivion. That was really a Passover of the heart. And it was not seen since the time of Solomon, where there was 14 days kept, like an amazing Bible school where it mentions Jew and Gentile, the stranger in the land, knowing that they were not worthy to be saved. But not only had God drawn near to them and forgiven them, but they were accepted and they were sons and daughters of the Almighty. That doesn't seem to be the time frame we're talking about here. It seems to link more to the time frame of Josiah, because after, sadly, Josiah and his uh, battle with Pharaoh Nico, the people did not need to be made to sin by Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin and Zedekiah. They just automatically, sadly, went back to idol worship. It was Manasseh that made the people to sin after the reforms of Hezekiah. So this time frame then is one of impending destruction by an invader. 
And so what is it that, the, that this prophecy focuses on? The urgent cry. Well, verse one, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. We know well, don't we, that the name Joel means Yah is God. So here there is a man who comes with the spirit of God's word and his name is Yah is God. Why would you think that would be necessary? Well, the son of Pethuel. Young's has that uh, as translated as God delivers, um, which would be very appropriate um, in this chapters uh, that we read together. But Strong says it as God has opened. And that might be even more interesting for us when we think about the preceding verse, because that opening implies opening of the ear in the Hebrew. And the very next verse, we get this call. Hear this, ye old men, and give ear. And this is normally the time where I say, how many old men do we have in the audience? But you can't really respond. And when I gave this talk before, even nobody wanted to admit that they were old men. Now, the RSV or the RV said aged men, and that sounds a little bit more polite, doesn't it? The aged men, all the inhabitants of the land. There is a specific primary focus upon the elders of the ecclesia that should have put the spiritual and physical well-being of the ecclesial house above themselves. There's an implication here that this was not happening. All the inhabitants of the land, hath this been in your days or even the days of your fathers? Verse 3, tell it, tell ye your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children another generation. Now, at a very practical level, this prophecy is saying to us that this is so important that we tell our children. And some of our children have been worried about COVID-19 and the things that they can see happening, their own parents. Some of us are very busy, more busy than we were before, other of us less busy. And then there's a worry that, are we gonna bring in enough money for the house? The anxiety that the children can face is very real. And again, the message here is for them that Yah is God and he is in control of all things. He is fulfilling his plan and his purpose. So a very practical level. But also it's been thought that this tells your children, children and their children speaks to the different time frames of the faithful remnant that is there to declare God's work and power in the earth. The children of the Old Testament, the children of the New Testament, the children of the last days in our time. It's so important, isn't it, that we remember that we're on the tiptoes of Nebuchadnezzar's image, an image that came from God. We know that we're living in the last days. Our, our second talk will be having a specific look into that and seeing how close it is for God's name to be manifested in the earth. And then it goes on to say um, in verse five, awake, ye drunkards, and weep. Howl, all ye drinkers of wine. And you think, well, there's, a, there's an emphasis there, isn't there? But there are actually two distinct different categories. Because when you're drunk, people can identify 
that you're drunk. You're not in your right mind. You're not acting in an appropriate fashion. And it's very visible. This seems, therefore, clear that this is identifying those who have become intoxicated with the things of the world. They've lost their focus. They're scrambling around in the darkness, drowning in the sea of nations. You've got to be sober, is the challenge of Titus in the New Testament. And so this is specifically for those who have allowed themselves to become part of the world as opposed to part of the ecclesia of God. What else is there? Only drinkers of wine. And that wine, um, in verse 5, it says, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Now, that word wine symbolizes the first juice. When you collect all the grapes and you put them in the great wine press, the force of gravity with the weight of those grapes will create that what's called the new wine. It's the most beautiful, tasty wine and doesn't have any pieces of grapes in it. It's beautiful. It's full of juice. And what's happening? Well, they're drinking it in their own homes without anybody knowing. And again, this, this links to chapter 2 and, and verse 13. These are <coughs> those in the ecclesia that are looking like they're doing the right things. But when they're going home at night, when they're alone with their families or by themselves, their focus is only on self. And that is a great risk of our time when we think about all the devices, all the technology that is available to us that can take us away from the word of life. There can be, as we know, very powerful and good uses of technology, but the time that is now wasted by civilization in front of a screen is phenomenal. I did a, a CYC talk um, a couple of years ago now, and uh, it was a part of that was to do with use of uh, social media platforms and, uh, and, and the, the internet. And the average time a five to 15 year old spends in front of a screen is 41 hours a week. You can plus or minus that by two. Now you might think, well, that's more than a full-time job. And it is. And uh, one thing that we, we got the, uh, the youngsters to do is do the iPhone challenge to, to go on there and have a look to see how many hours you're spending on there because many of them were quite shocked at the times that they saw that they had spent online. Now, you can spend a lot of time online doing good things, and we're not saying that. But <clears throat> the focus here is that we are preparing ourselves and that we're looking at the ecclesia. You remember that that new wine should have been poured out to the Lord. We'll have a look at that in a couple of moments when we have a look at the, the drink offering. That was not meant to be for you. It was meant to thank God for the harvest that he had given to you. We move on, don't we? That there's the lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. Now we know that there is a special lament, isn't there? Uh, we're coming up to um, the commemoration of, of World War I, Remembrance Day. How many people lost their lives in those great wars? And the sadness that that engendered. Well, here, the prophet is telling us that that 
is how we should be lamenting when we hear the words of this prophecy. And why is that? Well, that's the lament that the Lord Jesus Christ has for his people that don't correct their ways. There is a warning to everybody that we've got to really continue to have a look at where is our focus and priority in our lives, because the Lord is coming. And then we get the, the call to the ministers. <clears throat> and uh, in chapter 1 and verse 13, gird yourselves and lament ye priests, hourly ministers of the altar. So can you see that they were still officiating, they were still going through the motions, but yet they were not being the leaders of the people uh, that they should have been. You know, Ezekiel chapter 8 and verse 12 says that they were working in the ecclesial house, in the temple. But when they went to their bedchambers, they were worshipping idols. And that's the problem that we've all faced, isn't it? That we can't become a one-click ecclesia of convenience. It's not appropriate for us just to be logging in and saying hi on a Sunday. It's got to be much more meaningful than that, that we think about each other, that we practice the fruits of the spirit. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? The old and the young. Every single generation seems that the elderly, this, this despair of the youth sometimes, and the youth find the elderly quite difficult. But that was always the case. But when those two come together, and they learn about each other, they realize that the elderly has so much to offer. If they're willing to listen, the, the challenges may be different, but the processes and how you overcome those challenges is, is very much the same. And those prejudices or those perceptions are replaced by a deep understanding and strong relationship. And that's why it's so important that the Ecclesial House continues uh, to meet uh, as we do. Repent outwardly and inwardly is the call for Joel. <clears throat> and the husbandman in verse 11, and he wine dresses. You know, it was one of the biggest problems. They were spending a huge amount of time building up their storage barns. We've seen people stockpiling for COVID-19, haven't we? But the emphasis here is that they were putting their effort and focus into the ground in the accumulation of wealth the riches and the cares of this life. And the more they did that, the more that our Heavenly Father was frustrating them. And it was perishing, it was languishing. If they had poured out the first fruits unto the Lord and did judgment and justice with the fatherless and the widows, like Josiah their king had shown them to do, then they would have had the blessings. But their focus was on themselves rather than on others. And that is something, brothers and sisters, young people, that we continually have to battle against. We've got to continue to remind ourselves, where is our focus? Where is our attention? Where is our heart? And there's never, it's never too late to correct that when we think about what we should be doing uh, in the coming days and weeks that come ahead. Now, I'm not going to go into, into a huge amount of detail about the drink offering um, and the uh, meal offering. 
because we'll cover that a little bit uh, in the second talk. But here it is interesting that they are particularly focused um, on upon in these verses. You have in verse 9 the meat offering or the meal offering. I think the, it was mentioned in the cereal offering in our reading together. And the drink offering is cut off for the house of the Lord. And again, what was that signifying? It's signifying that we would be happy to give the offering of the first fruits to our Heavenly Father for a good harvest. They were acknowledging that God is in control of all things and that he could bring forth good fruit that we benefit from. The drink offering. Remember that new wine? They could have poured that out unto the Lord. But instead, they were drinking it in their houses. And the drink offering was one of blessing. But there was no blessing for them. Because they had got the wrong focus uh, in their lives. And so we have this sanctification of the solemn assembly, where all the inhabitants of the land come together and cry unto the Lord. And that's what we must try to do every day through prayer is cry unto the Lord and acknowledge that we have we continually fail in his sight. But through the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, he will always draw near unto us. And there's always that hope of everlasting life through grace in his kingdom. And so there's many um, allusions uh, in Joel to Zephaniah. Um, and Zephaniah to Joel, depending on where you put them. Um, you can have one recurring, one focusing on and mentioning the other, or vice versa. I seem, I think it's Joe, uh, Zephaniah that points to Joel, and it's Joel um, that quotes from Zephaniah. I won't go through these, uh, but these are just some of the links that you can find between these two uh, little prophecies. So we're going to skip over that and focus on the development uh, of the locust uh, in chapter one. It was quite interesting uh, that we had the revised version read because that is very helpful in terms of understanding what these different uh, creatures or animals might be. In the revised, uh, in the King James version rather, they look very different in terms of how they've been characterized. Um, but if we look at the Strong's numbers and different versions, there's a strong implication here that they are similar creatures. And an idea has been put forward that's quite compelling, that they are um, the different development stages of the same creature, the locust. And we have Strong's um, numbers up on the board there uh, that may be useful to note down as we, as we develop our thoughts on, on this particular aspect. So you have the creeping locust uh, in the nymph phase, and then the grasshopper where it starts to jump. And then you have the canker worm, which is potentially the young locust, not able to fly yet. And then you have the adult locust, that is the destroyer. That is the one with the voracious appetite uh, that consumes um, all green things uh, when they swarm. So remember that. And let's have a think about um, what these four different stages then might be together for a moment. Now, uh, Brother Fred Pierce came up with this idea. As we know, um, Hebrew words have numerical values, and the, uh, the total of the palm is 50, uh, and so on. And he thought that these could relate to the different time frames uh, of the various different kingdoms. Now, if we were in person, I'd see uh, if people liked that idea, they supported that idea. But as I can't, 
Um, I'll assume that you find it interesting, but not altogether convincing 100% is what I normally find uh, about these values. But they're an interesting idea uh, nonetheless. What is another idea? Well, another idea is, is, is that they are the different stages of captivity. We're going to have a look at uh, in a couple of moments what this uh, nation that's attacking might be. But here, if we believe that it's Babylon, and again, we'll have a look at verse six in a couple of moments, we see there that there were four main stages um, of captivity. In the third year of Jehoiakim, certain of the seed royal and intelligentsia were taken away in the land. That was the same time that Daniel um, and his friends were taken. And that was when uh, Jehoahaz was replaced uh, by Jehoiakim. Um, because Jehoahaz was more sympathetic to the uh, Egyptians. So replaced, Jehoiakim rather replaced by Egypt because Jehoahaz was less sympathetic. So we have, interestingly, Babylon coming, taking away the intelligentsia. Now, in Jeremiah, we have uh, in the seventh year of Nebuchadnezzar, 3,000 Hebrews taken. Just one little verse. That's the only verse that tells us of that um, significant captivity. Then we have another one in the eighth year of Nebuchadnezzar, Jehoiakim, Chin rather, mother, servants, princes, officers, mighty men taken. And then we have, again, in Jeremiah, a smaller captivity of 832. And then we have the big one, the devourer, as it's referred to in verse four, where there's a complete destruction of the city of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. And the remaining um, intelligentsia of the land of the people are taken uh, into captivity, leaving behind uh, the residue of the people. And then finally, there's another 475 that were taken away uh, later on of the remnant. So for many people, that is the compelling argument about why it is that there are these four different categories, these two different, these four different stages of, of captivity. And the reason that they've come up with this idea is, is that bearing in mind what locusts do, locusts eat and consume now, the interesting thing about the physiology of a locust, um, if you've ever looked into it, is, is that they are fascinating little creatures because when there's not that many of them, um, they like to be alone. Uh, they don't like uh, to be together. Um, but when they get to a certain critical mass, they change behavior completely and they start to swarm, their bodies change, they elongate, they have a far higher voracious appetite, um, and they come together and they swarm. Fascinating, you know, you could think that maybe they're a little bit like men. Men are solitary creatures, um, but then when you get a lot of them together, they can be pretty, pretty rowdy and pretty destructive, particularly uh, if you look at a football match, for example. And so it's interesting that these creatures have been used to describe this invasion because it's all about taking something away. It's not destruction for destruction's sake. It's taking things away. And these are consuming the land as they come into it. And there we can see how much food they can consume um, each day. Absolutely phenomenal 
Uh, they can eat its own weight um, each day and they can eat uh, 42 million pounds of plants every day. So an incredible little insect, an incredibly destructive. And interestingly, um, we've actually got uh, a locust plague currently going on um, in Africa. I'll just play a little clip for you before we draw our thoughts um, to a conclusion as to what is the message uh, that the scripture is telling us about the locust. The United Nations says locust swarms are threatening the food supply of millions. They've devastated thousands of crops as they move across parts of Africa. CNN's Fariza Vinzo takes a look at the problem and finds out why climate change might play a role. For three months now, swarms of desert locusts have been eating their way through East Africa. Here in Kenya's Laikipia County, people bang utensils to try and ward off an increasing menace to their livelihoods. All to no avail. The locusts keep coming. A voracious appetite means these locusts eat the equivalent of their own body weight in a single day. And they move with speed on the changing winds, as far as 150 kilometers, almost 100 miles a day. Beans, maize, pasture for animals, nothing stands a chance. Raising fears over food security, as the farmlands are decimated. And they keep breeding, laying their eggs in the earth in pastoral and agricultural lands. Across East Africa, locust swarms of biblical proportions have been threatening life and grazing land and eating all the people's crops. Here you can see these hoppers are the new generation that will pose a bigger threat to agriculture in Kenya. The war against the locusts. So we'll stop it. We'll stop it there and, uh, and move on. But it's fascinating that, that these creatures have such a voracious appetite and actually are causing huge destruction even today. I think Ethiopia has the worst locust infection uh, uh, spread for 25 years. And partly because COVID-19 has made it much more difficult uh, for them to address it. So what is it that these locusts cause? Well, they cause complete and utter economic collapse in the nations that they affect. Now, let's have a think about in scripture, where do we see the locusts? And we can see that the locusts um, appear first in the plagues uh, of Egypt. Interestingly, what was the problem that there was trying to be addressed uh, in Egypt? Well, there were two problems, weren't there? There was the problem that they were, the children of Israel were suffering at the hand of their taskmasters. But the second problem was, is that they had started to turn to the gods of Egypt. Ezekiel chapter 20 makes that absolutely clear, that they were turning to the gods of Egypt. Ezekiel 20 verses 5 to 9. And so not only then was this a physical act of salvation, but a, more importantly, a spiritual one. Now, as you look at the plagues up there, you can see the fourth plague is mentioned as flies. And normally I would ask you, does the people agree with that uh, assessment? And of course, um, the word flies is not actually in uh, the Exodus record. If you have a look at your margin, and maybe the RV would, would tell you this, uh, it means noisome beasts. So beasts or animals or creatures that make a large noise. So that could be flies. Uh, but it could be something quite different. And then when we come to, to read in, um, in the book of Psalms, 
Psalm, and you don't need to turn there, I'll turn there for you. But in Psalm 78, which is talking about this particular uh, incident in Egypt, it gives you an idea as to what these noisome beasts might be. In verse 45 of Psalm 78, he sent diverse sort of flies, but that word flies there is better translated swarm or a great number, which devoured them. So it's led many Bible students to believe that actually this fourth plague was not flies, but something that consumes, that devours. Flies don't generally consume us. They can bite us. But it's led many Bible students on studying this to think that this is actually talking about lions or bears, something that consumes. That's interesting for us when we're thinking about the prophecy of Joel, because we have the lion coming out uh, in the later verses, verse uh, six, for example. And so what is it that we're trying to get across here with the plagues of Egypt? Well, for those people who would be listening to the prophecy, having a look back in the scripture at where the locust first appeared would get immediately the message because the, Joel makes clear that this invader is of the Lord. This is Lord, the Lord's army that is carrying out his will. Turn with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Because here it's quite interesting when we see the different plagues of Egypt being applied here. Because we're going to particularly focus upon uh, the locust. If we have um, a look at Deuteronomy 28 uh, and verse 18... <coughs> We have cursed shall be the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy land, the increase of thy kind and thy flocks of thy sheep. Could be uh, referring to the fifth plague, the disease on livestock. We have verse 24, the Lord shall make the rain of the land powder and dust. Is that alluding to the seventh plague of hail and fire? Verse 26, the fourth plague, the carcasses shall be meat and all the fowl of the air and on the beasts of the earth and no man shall fray them. The devouring creatures. Verse 28. The Lord shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart. Is that talking about the ninth plague, the plague uh, of darkness? But our focus <coughs> on verse 32 is the tenth plague, perhaps. But our focus here is to have a specific look at verse 32. Uh, rather, verse 38. Thou shalt carry much seed out into the field and shall gather but little in, for the locust shall consume it. That's exactly the same problem. Their focus of their attention was on the acclimation of wealth in their day. They were working very hard to produce grain, and God is frustrating them. And verse 42. All thy trees and fruit of thy land shall the locust consume. Now, that word locust is a slightly different word again. It's different from the four uh, locusts that we had uh, in Joel. It actually means clattering. And it's signifying there not so much the locust, but the activity of the locust. This is a swarm. This is the swarm that is making that noise, devouring and consuming the land. And again, the message here is that if our focus is in incorrect, God will frustrate our work so that we realign to him and his command. And verse 58, if thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, 
that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, Yahweh, thy God. The name of Joel appears in verse 58. Because that's the message that the plagues were giving to the children of Israel. The gods of Egypt that have been discredited by these plagues, they were no gods. Because God wants them to know that Yah is God. Verse 59, then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful and the plagues of thy seed, even great plagues of a long continuance and sore sickness and suffering. And so we have there the very powerful message that these plagues remind us that God is in control. COVID-19. It is a plague from God. We know he's in control, but our response to it should be to ref refresh our memories, to remind ourselves that God is in control and that we need not be afraid. And so there's this idea, isn't it, that, that the locusts can cause total economic collapse. It's, it's one of those things that makes men's hearts filling them for fear more than anything else, to lose everything. Could, who are the locusts in modern day? Well, you were in 19, uh, the, uh, the, in 2018, you probably thought the locusts were the bankers. Today, we might think that actually COVID-19 actually is the locusts. The, the damage that they've done to the economy is worse, is projected to be worse than the costs and the debt that we got into after World War II. That is an incredible thing, that this little microscopic microbe is causing so much damage globally, never before seen because we're so much more connected uh, in the world. We won't go through <coughs> uh, these points, but a major recession is coming. We have almost reached the zenith of human existence, and now we're expecting it to go down. I remember when we were speaking with a small ecclesia up in Wales, we were saying that when I was growing up, if you had one car, you were considered to be quite wealthy. Um, nowadays, two cars is the norm, three cars. It's incredible how the relative wealth of people has massively uh, increased, but how COVID-19 could be undoing a huge amount of that. So locusts in scripture, we're going to skip over, over this fairly quickly, but when are they used? Well, we've mentioned in Exodus, but one thing just to notice here is that the east wind brings the locusts and the land was darkened by them, Okay, but then where do they end up? They end up with the west wind blowing them into the Red Sea. Just remember that uh, for our talk uh, later on. They end up in the Red Sea, which, of course, red uh, being Eden, uh, synonymous with sin. Leviticus 11 says you can eat the locust. Unusual, perhaps. John the Baptist used to eat the locust. But it's always better with a bit of wild honey. And is it telling us that the locust is symbolizing the, the corruption of the earth by, by mankind? But if we consume it with the word of God, we can overcome, as John the Baptist did. We've already been to Deuteronomy 28, and Midian, interestingly, were referred to as grasshoppers for multitude. And again, that story is fascinating because you went from an army of 32,000 to 10,000, to just 300 men. Why? To demonstrate to the children of Israel in the time of Gideon that Yah is God. This is not going to be a victory of man. Yah is in control. 
again, we won't, we won't go through all of these, but Solomon's prayer was that if we sin, bring the locust and the caterpillar upon us. He realized that that was a way that God demonstrated his judgments on the earth to bring about an economic collapse so that there could be a spiritual revival, a spiritual focus. Psalm 78, God's wrath of disobedience. And here, interestingly, in Isaiah 51, we've got an allusion to Babylon and they're going to be as caterpillars. There's a specific reference to Babylon being caterpillars. The, the locust causes the horses to come up as rough caterpillars. We're going to have a look at the horse uh, in chapter two later on, as we think about the, the latter day prophecy of Joel. And so here we see that these analogies speak to us of God in control of these creatures that conduct his will to lead about a spiritual revival. And then in, in Joel chapter 1, uh, drawing our thoughts to a conclusion, we have verse 6. For a nation is come up upon my land strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. That word lion there is the normal word, but as we had mentioned in the RV, that second word of the lion, lion at the end of the verse signifies a lioness. And a lion in hunting. And this is exactly what this lion is going to do. As the locusts consumed, there's a focus here upon the jaw of this lion. It's going to consume the people. And so when do we think, when we think about a lion in scripture, what, what do we think of? Well, we know that they're symbols of Babylon, but there is an illusion, isn't there? In Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 17, Israel is like sheep, but the lions have driven him away. First, the king of Assyria hath devoured him, and last, this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, hath broken his bones. And then Jeremiah 4, the lion is come up from the thicket, the destroyer of the Gentiles in his way. And so we see that the lion again is used in the scripture figuratively as a representation of God's judgment. Proverbs 30, there is a generation whose teeth were as swords and their jaw teeth as knives. And the focus here on the cheek teeth or the jaws implies that it's consuming. Those teeth are active and they're coming. Now is the time to serve the Lord, says Joel. And so, so it is that these analogies speak to us of the Babylonian invasion. That beautiful temple is going to be destroyed to bring about a spiritual revival through complete economic collapse of the land and in the hope that the people will turn back to God. And there's the Ishtar Gates, one of the seventh wonders of the ancient world that you can see um, in some scale uh, in the newer museum uh, in Berlin. <coughs> so let's have a finish off by this solemn assembly then uh, in verse 14. What is it that the, the prophecy of Joel wants them to do? Well, there's this, this focus upon repentance. These things are coming. Don't be distracted by the cares of this world. Don't just go through the motions. Don't become a Pharisee, says Joel. You've got to look after the fatherless and the widow. Do not forget them. Do not put all your focus and attention on the acclimation of wealth, the crops. 
because sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, and God will supply. Verse 12 of chapter 2. Therefore, saith the Lord, turn even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rent your heart, not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord? What the prophet is saying here is, is that don't be stiff-necked. Turn back to God, and he will always turn back to you. Remember the meal offering, that unleavened bread mixed with a little oil and a little honey symbolizing the power of God's word in our lives, focusing our attention on the kingdom and strengthening the things that remain, the drink offering, because God wants to give us the blessing uh, in his kingdom. He wants us all through grace to be in the land when he comes. And so we draw our thoughts to a conclusion by this last verse, the teacher of righteousness in verse 23, thinking about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, in the latter rain in the first month. Not an easy verse to understand, but the Hebrew reads, as, as Brother John Thomas identified for he has given you a teacher of righteousness and he shall cause to descend for you a rain a teacher and a latter rain in the first month the focus is is that the lord jesus christ has been provided he it is who will give you the former rain he will be there as the perfect offering for sin laying down his life for his friends but this focus and this attention is not only for the Jewish people. This will be poured out upon the apostles, upon their brethren, and even unto the Gentiles. And he will come again and sit in Zion when the Passover, the marriage supper of the Lamb, shall be with us all in the kingdom through grace. And so this great cry of chapter one is replaced with this wonderful message of hope uh, in the last days, as people look to their maker. In Acts chapter 2, we have the pouring out uh, of the Spirit um, after Pentecost. Interestingly, that's 50 days after the Passover, after the peace, Feast of Weeks. And we see the day, 50 days after the first fruits. And for our last quotation, let's turn to Numbers uh, chapter 28 which reminds us of the simple offerings that we need to give in our lives. We, we don't have to do that much to achieve salvation. We just have to present our bodies uh, in godly service. We've been asked to do no great thing. Numbers uh, chapter 26, 28 rather, verse 26. And in the day of the firstfruits, when he bring a new meat offering or meal offering unto the Lord, after your weeks be out, he shall have an holy convocation. He shall do no servile work, 
but you shall offer the burnt offering for sweet savour unto the Lord. Two young bullocks, one ram, seven lambs of the first year. And verse 31, he shall offer them beside the continual burnt offering and his meat offering or meal offering. They shall be, with, be unto you without blemish and their drink offerings. The message of Joel in the beginning is change your focus. Don't be distracted by the things of this world. Don't go just through the motions. You've got to manifest the love of the Lord Jesus Christ in your lives as he has saved every one of us from our sin. And there is a message of hope and salvation for all of us. Yah is God. He is in control and he will deliver us. And in our second talk, we'll be looking together at how this applies to the events subsequent to God's manifestation in the earth.